The Hamlet Podcast, episode 96. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. At the end of the previous episode, poor Guildenstern was reaching the end of his tether with Hamlet, insisting that the prince should give him a wholesome answer. If not, he said, that would be the end of his business. Hamlet, of course, has no intention of giving them any ground and answers Guildenstern's ultimatum very simply. All he says is, Sir, I cannot. Guildenstern, all puffed up from his outburst, is a little deflated by this and asks, What, my lord? Hamlet explains himself. Make you a wholesome answer. My wit's diseased. But, sir... Such answer as I can make, you shall command. Or rather, as you say, my mother. Therefore, no more. But to the matter. My mother, you say. As ever, Hamlet is twisting words that have already been said when he explains that he cannot give a wholesome answer because his wit's diseased. If he's out of his mind, how can he give a sensible answer? Oh, so graciously, Hamlet insists instead that whatever poor answer he can make, the lads will command. Or, rather, since they've admitted as much themselves, his mother will, since they are, of course, here at Gertrude's bidding. Therefore, no more, he says, but to the matter. Enough talk, he's saying. Let's get to the point. My mother, you say. Some editions of the text have it that Guildenstern asks the previous what, my lord, while others assign it to Rosencrantz. There's even a suggestion in some versions that Guildenstern exits after Hamlet's Sir, I Cannot earlier on. They're such a double act, though, I think it's unfortunate to separate them like this, particularly as there's a good deal of character to be mined from the way this scene is written. We've just had the longest stretch of lines spoken by Guildenstern alone, and then he's shot down by Hamlet's continued insistence that he's mad. If Guildenstern stays on stage, we get to see him put out and annoyed and confused. It's surely quite deliberate that he stops talking now and Rosencrantz takes over. Hamlet's previous little segment of the text ended asking, My mother, you say? And Rosencrantz replies. Then, thus she says, Your behaviour hath struck her into amazement and admiration. Hamlet's performance has struck Gertrude into amazement and admiration, not necessarily quite as positive as our contemporary usage of these words might suggest. Gertrude is very likely horrified and mortified at her son's shenanigans. Of course, Hamlet has a twisted response to this. He says, Oh, wonderful son that can so astonish a mother. But is there no sequel at the heels of this mother's admiration? In part. Nothing that Hamlet has done was accidental, and he hasn't really given us any intimation of having considered how his mother might react to the play, since his focus was so determinedly on Claudius. Here now he mocks the idea of her having been shocked. What a wonderful son that can so astonish a mother. Surely his mother should know him better, and maybe know herself better, rather than being shocked at all of the things he's doing. But, Hamlet asks, is that all? Did she say anything else other than being shocked? Is there no sequel at the heels of this mother's admiration? Rosencrantz replies, and this is the point of the scene. Very simply, he says... She desires to speak with you in her closet, ere you go to bed. A closet is something like a private room. It's not necessarily a bedroom, although it's very often staged in the closet scene with Gertrude as such. 
Ophelia does her needlework in her closet, as we learned earlier, and it could also be a place for study or for prayer or even the writing of important documents. What is essential is that it is a private, secluded space. Gertrude obviously wants a very quiet word with Hamlet, and she wants it tonight. Hamlet readily agrees. We shall obey were she ten times our mother. Have you any further trade with us? This is a strange little line, with Hamlet as ever exaggerating. He would agree to go to see Gertrude were she ten times his mother. What's far more interesting is that this is the first time that Hamlet has spoken in the royal plural. It's not I, it's we. There's a shift in the way that he's speaking to these friends of his, and indeed he reduces them to servants by asking if they have any more trade with us. Rosencrantz picks up on this subtle shift in Hamlet's language. He makes quite a bold move, saying, My lord, you once did love me. Whatever's going on, Rosencrantz is playing the card that he and Hamlet were once good friends. And Hamlet replies, So I do still by these pickers and stealers. This is a very curious little phrase, which has surely vexed many productions through the ages. Bizarrely, as it may appear at first at least, it's a reference to the Catechism in the Book of Common Prayer. I'll go into further detail in the show notes for this episode, but here Hamlet is referring to the required explanation of the Eighth of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not steal. In the Catechism, one professed that what is taught by this commandment is... I am required to be true and just in all my dealings, to keep my hands from picking and stealing, to learn and labour truly to get my own living, and to do my duty in that state of life unto which it shall please God to call me. At a surface level, it's easy enough to explain. Pickers and stealers quite simply mean hands, in a world perhaps rife with thieves and pickpockets. But within the method of Hamlet's madness, nothing is really accidental, there's quite a dig behind this reference. For all of Hamlet acknowledging that his hands may pick and steal, I think he's being much craftier and letting Rosencrantz and Guildenstern know what he thinks of them, whether they have the wit to see it or not. The Catechism was presumably familiar to the entire audience, even perhaps in the far reaches of their memories, so it's enough for Hamlet to reference the beginning of it with pickers and stealers, because it also promises to be fair and just in one's dealings, do one's duty, and, best of all, learn and labour truly to get one's own living. None of which Guildenstern and Rosencrantz are really doing. There's no truth to their friendship, and no fairness to their treatment of their friend. Nowadays the Catechism isn't even remotely as familiar, so this subtle moment is all but lost to us. But it's a super little twist from Hamlet. Rosencrantz absolutely doesn't get it, and he eagerly returns to the main mission from Claudius to get information out of Hamlet. He asks, Good my lord, what is the cause of your distemper? You do surely bar the door upon your own liberty if you deny your griefs to your friend. He's trying again, trying to see if he can learn what's wrong with Hamlet, what might be the cause of his distemper. He tries to be poetic even, with an image suggesting that Hamlet is barring the door to his own freedom by refusing to tell his friends what's troubling him. There's a little menace in this, considering what Claudius will be telling Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to do by the end of this very evening in Elsinore, but Rosencrantz himself isn't aware of any of this yet. He's, I think, just reaching for an image of freedom and relief for Hamlet if he'll only tell them what's wrong. 
Hamlet does, but not in a way that gives very much away. He says, Sir, I lack advancement. Keeping the new air of formality, he addresses Rosencrantz as Sir and admits that he lacks advancement. He's stuck in a rut, and he is not yet King of Denmark. And indeed, he's returned to I instead of we, perhaps as a suggestion that he's letting Rosencrantz in on a little secret. Rosencrantz rushes to assuage him. How can that be, when you have the voice of the king himself for your succession in Denmark? This is surely not a problem, he's saying. Claudius himself has said, and we've heard it, that Hamlet is next in line to the throne. Hamlet will be king after Claudius, so what's the problem? Hamlet quotes another proverb in reply. Aye, but sir, while the grass grows, the proverb is something musty. The original proverb is, while the grass grows, the horse starves. In other words, don't wait for what you want to happen because it might come to you too late. Hamlet is likening himself to the horse, stuck waiting for what he wants. It's an easy way to assuage Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, since it's perfectly acceptable for him to confess to such a frustration. It's a deflection, of course, and he doesn't even finish the phrase. He cuts himself off and acknowledges that the proverb is something musty. Like the old proverb, his situation is also a familiar one. They'll have heard it before. It's the lot of most princes waiting to become kings. It's now Rosencrantz's turn to be quiet, as some others come and enter the room. But we'll save their entrance for the next episode. Thanks as ever for listening, and do be sure to check out the website for even more details of those pickers and stealers and the Book of Common Prayer. You can find show notes for this and for every episode at thehamletpodcast.com. I'll speak to you next time.